It's a feeling unlike any other. Soaring into the sky, with wind under their wings, floating ever so gently in the air before sticking it to the landing hill. Ski jumping is indeed a magical sport. Welcome to Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast, bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and we're happy to have you join us for this week's episode with your host on Ticket to Fly, Peter Graves. The USA has a long and storied history in ski jumping, dating all the way back to Olympic medalist Anders Haugen in 1924. Over the past decades, the USA has been a pioneer in women's ski jumping, and one of the history makers in the sport was Sarah Hendrickson. Today, Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves talks with Sarah Hendrickson in an exclusive interview for Ticket to Fly. It's a unique look at the highs and lows of her career that included the debut World Cup title in 2012 and a subsequent World Championship gold just a year later. Peter will explore Sarah's entry into the sport, initially chasing her older brother Nick up and down the ski jump hills. And they will dive into the pain and tears of injuries that impacted her career on the eve of the sport's Olympic debut in 2014. Most of all, it's a story of passion for a sport she selected as a young girl and the thrill she found by soaring through the air. Let's join Peter Graves with Sarah Hendrickson on this episode of Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic Podcast. Today we're very happy to have with us our special guest, Sarah Hendrickson, who had an extraordinary career for the U.S. women's ski jumping team, recently has announced her retirement from the sport and Sarah joins us from her home near Aspen, Colorado. Uh, Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. I think that it's been quite a long time since I saw you last. I think probably at a FIS meeting somewhere along the line. How have you uh, done dealing with this pandemic? Oh, um, you know, it's been it's been okay for me. Um of course, um, start when I started thinking about retirement, it was kind of in the middle of that pandemic, and I kind of faced some challenges as I was trying to come back, but inevitably decided to step away from the sport. But all in all, can't complain. I kind of moved out full-time to Colorado, which is where I'm going to be for the foreseeable future, and just been really content here, to be honest. Not a lot of travel, which is something I haven't done in a long time. And right. Quite frankly, I, I am enjoying it quite a bit. So just get to ski a lot, bike in the summer. It's it's totally perfect. I have a few side jobs right now keeping me afloat until I reach a new a new chapter in my education career in August. Oh, that's great. And you're studying over there. Is that right? I have um, no classes right now. I finished my prerequisites for the program that I'm starting in August. Um, let's see, that was in the summer. So I've kind of been off for like two se semesters, but I'll start back um, in August of 2021. And I was accepted into the nursing program at Colorado Mountain College, um, which is a two-year program to get my RN. And I'm mm -hmm. really, really excited about that. Good for you. Uh, and I think not only is that a wonderful thing to do, but I think with an RN, you can always find a job. That's what I've been told anyways. They're they're very much in demand. 
Well, Sarah, um, we want to talk a little bit about the past uh, uh, and, and kind of get started. Uh, you were uh, a bit the next generation from Lindsay and that group that women's jumping was going pretty strong up in Park City and, and other places too. So uh, let's talk about what was the influence of some of those girls that went just a little before you in helping you decide that uh, ski jumping was something you wanted to do? Well, I'll, I'll say that, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, as I was very, very fortunate and lucky with my timing of when I started ski jumping and when I started executing those results. Um, and it's because of that generation before me of those girls that you mentioned that was on that first World Cup team. And in the early 2000s, they only had Continental Cups available to them as the international competition level. Um, but as we know, they started pushing as early for the 2010 Olympics and that didn't happen, but we were granted access for the 2014 Olympics. So, I mean, I, I didn't start ski jumping because I wanted to be an Olympian. I started ski jumping because I fell in love with the sport and I fell in love with jumping larger hills. I fell in love with the technical aspect, the challenge, the speed, the flight, you know, all those things that the sport is so incredible in encompassing. And it wasn't until I was maybe 10 or 11 did I realize that those opportunities of jumping on World Cup, of going to World Championships in the Olympics wasn't available simply because I was a girl. Then I got introduced to those older girls on my team that had been pushing and I was very fortunate to kind of follow in their wake and just start progressing the sport on a technical level and which inevitably started leading to more inclusion in events and of course the Olympics. There was a lot of energy around uh, the topic of women's jumping at that point. I mean, some of those girls broke the door down and then you you went through it and and arrived uh, at the very pinnacle of the sport. I know your family a little bit, your older brother. Did did they all play a role in your decision to do this? Absolutely. I mean, I joke because there's two reasons I got started in ski jumping. One is because of the influence of the 2002 Olympics in my backyard at Park City. And the town did an amazing job giving opportunities to kids in our community to try Olympic sports, ski jumping being the one that I kind of gravitated towards. Secondly, I got started because I got sick of watching my brother either in the car or in the cold. And I think my either my mom asked me if I wanted to try it or I said, mom, I think I want to try it. I have heard the rumor that the coaches always wanted me to try it because they had seen me on skis. And 2002 Winter Olympic was around and uh, there was a little kid program up at the Canyons Resort and I wanted to be with my brother because I was always running after him and so he had a huge huge contribution to my career not just to get started but for years to come because he was on the national level and international level for Nordic combined and I always looked up to him and his athletic performance and achievements and then of course my mom and my dad both influential in in different ways you may have heard that my dad uh, jumped in high school but really he'll be the first to admit that he didn't take it super seriously as he jokes that he once he pulled up to Lake Placid and saw that tower it was it was about the end of his career for that but 
so we had a little background because he had done that in high school, but you know, I, he always supported me and he worked hard so that my brother and I could afford to go to these, to the jumping camps and to the program and um, the small trips that we did each year. And then of course my mom, which anybody that knows me as my mom is my rock and her athletic genes that come from her side of the family is absolutely phenomenal. She was a long distance runner for a long time and never, never want to shy away from a challenge. And I, and I inherited that stubbornness and determination and grit to um, pursue anything that I wanted to. And I think that is a lot to say because, you know, I didn't just have to work hard on the athletic side, but because we were not included for so long, you kind of had to have a separate set of determination to keep going in a sport that quote unquote, didn't really have a future at the time. Yeah. And, and, and it's really interesting because you were kind of at the epicenter um, of of a lot of uh, uh, the, uh, the the there was legal action, of course, against Van Ock and and maybe IOC. Um, finally, uh, we got it into the Olympic Games, but you know, and I, I saw actually the the really wonderful film that was made on you guys is uh, really powerful. I, and I, I actually actually quite cried uh, when I watched that thing because it was so moving to see all the things that, that you guys went through to get in the Olympic Games. Uh, it was that powerful. And while, while uh, you know, we, we are in the Olympic program now and the world championships, um, it didn't really come easy, did it, Sarah? No, and I and I want to be clear that I wasn't up in Vancouver at the time when Jessica and Lindsay were yep. at that court case. They and and a bunch of Canadian girls and Norwegian and German girls were on that forefront in the in on that legal side in two thousand and nine. I I kind of slipped in after them for that after they had done that legal course. I think I'm doing my time now in terms of progressing the sport because. As you might mention in a little bit, we're still very unequal in the world of women's ski jumping, and we still only have one event in the Olympics. So yes, we are in. That's great, but I'm working on way more progressive movements in terms of prize money, in terms of number of events, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm putting in my time now where I got a little bit off easy at the beginning. Yeah, and I should also add, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, you're still on a fist committee for jumping, right? Um, yes, I am on the um, athlete commission for women's ski jumping. This will be my fourth or fifth year, and um, there was supposed to be a re-election this year, but due to the pandemic, they've pushed it back to next year, so I'm at least on for another year, which is a lot of work to be politically involved on that end. And you know, now, not that I didn't appreciate what the girls were doing in front of me um, for Vancouver and and stuff like that, but. I, I really appreciate it now, I guess, because I'm in, I'm in those meetings and I'm putting in proposals and et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, it's quite overwhelming. And as we all know, it's all volunteer basis. So I'm happy to do it, but it's, it's a lot of work. So Lindsay goes on to win the world championships and you, I, I believe your, maybe your first, at least big international debut was Continental Cup in February of 2009. What do you recall about that event? Because you won. Um, I I had competed in 2008, I believe, um, was my first World Juniors. So then that following year, yep, was the second World Juniors and some Continental Cups. And I 
Um, I ended up winning that Continental Cup, which was a total crazy event. It was like a one round, like kind of a weather crapshoot, but I guess regardless, a win is a win. So that was amazing. But yeah, those years um, before we had World Cup was just, it was craziness. We competed in Continental Cups in the weirdest places in the world and staying at hostels and stuff like that. But again, it's those little memories that you remember. Yeah. And you were... You were pretty young then. I mean, I don't know. You were 12 or 13 or 14 in that range somewhere, I believe. 14 was the first time. Yeah, 13 or 14 was the first time I traveled internationally. I don't know how my mom let me do that, but I did. And then you, uh, as part of this progression, you you debut uh, uh, World Cup uh, with a win in Oslo 2011, where... You had a come-from-behind win against Sarah Takanashi. Obviously, that was another stepping stone to your growth as a jumper. Yeah, I actually think that was in Lillehammer in 2011. So I won that first World Cup ever, which was very exciting. And again, like I remember jumping well, but I didn't have any expectations. And I was just enjoying the sport. I was enjoying my team. And again, that fuels the path to success. I I learned out years down the road that if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not going to be successful in it. So yeah, that that first World Cup season was incredible. Um, Ended up winning nine out of 13 events and the World Cup overall, which is just crazy. But like you said, it just started fueling me for my desire to be the best in the world. And then of course, with my eyes set on future world championships and the Olympics in 2014. Yeah. And that was the first year, I think that the women's world cup for jumping started on this debut. You won the crystal globe that year as well. So it had been a, an extraordinary season for you. And I wanted to ask you a little about Sarah Takanashi. You are certainly rivals, but I always heard you got along with her quite fine. It was really a rivalry on the Hill. What was that like? Sarah Takanashi is one incredible little powerhouse. And it was absolutely all kind of the media hype and the Sarah versus Sarah story that people loved. (laughs) I mean, we were always cordial. And I think with ski jumping, you know, it's a non-contact sport. So I always competed against myself because I wanted to have the best jumps that I could have that day. And if I executed, then... I was at the level where I would probably win that day, but, um, it was, um, we were jumping neck and neck for those, for those first couple years on world cup. And it was such a pleasure. Like she is an incredible athlete. She's had over a hundred podiums now in the ski jumping world and just this iconic, um, face for women ski jumping. And I, I couldn't have had a better experience with, um, competing against each other during those years. Yeah. And she's still competing, which is all the more extraordinary, you know? All right. So uh, world championships come to Val de Femme 2013. It's also world championships where Johnny Spillane, who we talked to on our last show, won a gold medal there. This was to be a pretty big event for you as well. 
Yeah, it's one of my fondest memories. Winning a one-day event, so a, a world championships or an Olympic medal, um, You everything has to come together on that day. I mean, you can't have a stomach bug. You can't have equipment problems, coaches' problems, weather, luck. And so um, I... I say I'm very proud of that day because I was so mentally strong and able to execute my best jumps at a really high level. And that obviously came to a win. More so, it's the support that I had from my team at that time. You'll see pictures of them running out to hug me and I was put on their shoulders. And, um, you know, that team of five where we won the Nations Cup for two years in a row, you know, I won't deny that we had our challenges. All five of us were very, very different people, but we worked through those and we were able to push each other to the highest level in the world. And again, it's an individual competition. So you compete for the same nation, but at the end of the day, everyone's, you know, a competitor of one another at the top of the hill. And it's genuinely hard to kind of sit at the bottom of the hill while your friend or teammate is jumping a lot better than you and and run out and give them a hug and be excited for them. And that's exactly what all of them did. And that still, you know, brings like a smile to my face, just knowing that I had a team behind me through that whole thing. And um, again, it's, it's my favorite and most proud moment in my ski jumping career. As, as well, it should. And it was very exciting. You know, we saw the Olympics in Sochi on the horizon and, and then please forgive me, but I have to ask you this as a journalist and, and uh, um, July, 2013, and I do remember hearing about it that day. I don't think it's a subject you've talked a great deal about, and I can understand if that's the case why. But tell me a little bit about Oberstdorf because looking back, it seems this was a this injury, this fall had a, an enormous impact on your career. Definitely, it was actually the end of August, August twenty second. So I had less than six months until Sochi and we were training in Oberstdorf, Germany. And I really love jumping large hills. And so we had been jumping on the large hill and just having a blast jumping super well. And, you know, we know it's a little bit of a dangerous sport and I, I ended up having too much speed and I jumped the hill in Oberstdorf and um, ended up destroying my right knee, um, my ACL, my MCL, meniscus everything was totally destroyed and it was yeah it was really hard and it is kind of a bummer because I never got back to winning after that and I wouldn't change my path I guess but it is hard to kind of swallow that pill and say like the what ifs of of those scenarios but um yeah I ended up rehabbing really quickly in five months to be named to the Sochi team but um with that I had to kind of recognize that the chances of winning a medal like I was kind of favored to do were off the table and my focus was just to be named to that team because it was the first ever women's ski jumping event that we would see in the Olympics and um, I had to be reminded that I deserved to be there and that I was a part of this historical moment and pushing the sport to get at this level and yeah, it was um, it was very much a traumatic experience. I've had to work with a lot of mental coaches, sports psychologists, therapists, whatever, to get over this um, 
this crash in 2013, not even from the physical point of view, but from the mental point of view, because um, the amount of pressure that I had coming at me from sponsors, from coaches, from doctors, you know, everyone is in their best wants the best for you but it is a lot to take in at the age of 19 you know what kind of surgery do you want do you want to try and make it to the olympics do you want to watch this rehab do you want to just step back and and just focus on the next olympics it was really really a lot to handle as a 19 year old and it depleted me i'll come out and say it depleted me and i put my head down and worked my butt off to get there and i'm very thankful for that experience but like you mentioned, it was kind of the turning point in my career where I didn't quite come back from it on the result side. Did you wait to get home before you were operated on? Definitely, yes. I fell, fell on a Wednesday and I, I got operated on the following Thursday um, because, yeah, I mean, I got home as quickly as we could get home and then, you know, met with the best doctors in the world to figure out what the best plan was moving forward. I thought you handled it so well and really so courageously. It set you apart from from others. And I, I would guess, knowing you a, a bit, Sarah, that your rehab, you were pretty passionate about. I, I'm guessing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, you can say, but I'm guessing you worked as hard on that as anything you ever did, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had a six-hour gym regimen between you know, keeping the core strong, mental coaching, um, the leg exercises that I was able to do, not to mention, you know, the, you know, the awkward topic of, you know, maintaining your weight, because we're a ski jumper, we have to keep weight off. And it was an intense regimen. And I'm so thankful for the physical therapists, that the physical therapists, the doctors, everyone strength coach that was a part of that process, because I mean, it was undeniably so intense. And I, I, looking back, it's like, oh my gosh, how did I get through that? But I had every morning I woke up with a dream of watch, walking into the opening ceremonies and no one was going to stop me. And you did that. Are you in any residual pain from that, Sarah? In the last two years, I've really dedicated a lot of time to curing my chronic pain um, because a lot of pain can be linked to kind of emotional trauma and past experiences because things have already healed, but you still have that like neural pathway that reminds you of the pain. Anyway, that's, that's a whole nother topic, but I struggled with chronic pain for the next six years. And it's not until about the last year that I've able to overcome that through a lot of therapy and a lot of mental training. So now I live a pretty great life, but it would that crash set me up for four more knee su- surgeries. So if it was just that crash in 2013, I totally could have been fine. I actually came back and podiumed in 2015. Things were looking really up. I was six at World Championships in 2015. Um but then I, I retore that same ACL in the spring or the summer of 2015, which set me up for an 18-month rehab. So, okay, we'll, we'll talk about Sochi. Here is the debut of women. You did get your opening ceremony to march in. You had bib number one in Sochi. Tell me a little bit about Sochi, how you, how you viewed it, how the experience was like. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of me that remembers how frustrating it was be 
was to be there, but not at my highest level. I had about 20 training jumps before I was competing, which is mm. absolutely insane. The The girls around me had probably had 500 by that time. So I was trying to be really excited, but it was definitely hard that I wasn't at my level. And I was in excruciating pain. My knee was, um, we were struggling to get it straight. I was still walking with a limp, all these things, um, which made it really difficult. But regardless, it was an amazing experience. I was granted bib number one because I had not competed that year. And so therefore I was the lowest World Cup ranked athlete. It was the silver lining to a really hard situation. Through any of that, you'd be forgiven for falling into bouts of self-pity. Was there at some point anything that you said, like, why me? I, I just, I can't believe this. I was on my way to a perfect scenario. And then this, ah, rats. <laughs> I think definitely I had those those periods of time. And if not in those six months between the crash and the the competition years later, I had that, I would say, why, why am I the one dealing with this, where my other competitors have never even taken a World Cup off, they had never missed a World Cup. And here I am, surgery number six, and still cannot get a break, quote unquote. And yeah, I mean, there's still days that I I'm, I'm bummed out that I the Olympics never went the way that I wanted it to go. But that's why I work with a therapist. That's why I work with a sports psych. Yeah. It's like, okay, maybe it wasn't meant to be. I I did what I needed to do in the sport, and now I'm on a different path, and I am more than a professional athlete. Absolutely. You know, sometimes all of our dreams don't come true. That That's just a factor of life. They certainly haven't always with me. And, and I was not the elite athlete that that you were. I, I didn't have legitimate dreams for, for a gold medal. But I, I, I do think that over time, and particularly with looking back on these things, there's a, there's a piece that comes later with some kind of acceptance. You know, I mean, the one question I wanted to ask you, you said that year going into Sochi, you had about 20 jumps. So a lot the American women had probably 500 in those 20 jumps going into Sochi. Did you ever, did you feel like you found the sweet spot? I, 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 again, was that no. Okay. So you went into Sochi knowing, you know, you had a broader picture on it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I had to reassess those goals and, um, just say, okay, if you may, and I, and I don't, like the phrase, like it just make the team, because I think that's not a great goal. I think you should always follow through. You don't just want to show up to the Olympics and go willy nilly. Like that's never been the way that I wanted to do it, but I never, I felt good enough to jump, but I was, I, there was no way that I could break down that barrier within 20 jumps to execute the level that I could and, and there's a funny story here is I had been tr the training jumps that I had in Sochi you know they were very middle of the pack I think I was maybe fit rank 15th 20th 25th you know only out of 30 girls so this was not the normal Sarah that I usually had those results and then on the competition day trial jump I like I don't know what happened I guess I gunned it but if you ask Alan Alborn <laughs> 
He was on the coach's <laughs> stand and he flagged me and he said, I watched you going over the knoll. And all the coaches looked at me and said, oh crap, what the heck is she going to pull out today? And and that oh, that, that jumped, oh. I was ranked like eighth or something. And uh, I, I obviously didn't have as good of a jump the next time when it when it mattered. But it was just uh, kind of hilarious because he just looked at me as like, that is so typical of you to just break down the barrier on competition day and just pull out all the stops. And How interesting. Did you get tired? Did the media come up to you not wanting to let it go? The storyline, did you ever get uh, tired of explaining the same stuff over and over again? I mean, we're here still talking about it, you know? So there you it, go. It was yeah. really hard and it was hard. Uh, it's hard even sometimes walking around Park City and people genuinely care, like, how is your knee? But that's something that's fed into my chronic pain because guess what? When people only ask you about your knee, guess what you're thinking about? Your knee pain. Of course. So your knee pain is yeah. going to be there. So every time someone asks, it triggers, like, oh, how is my knee? Oh, it kind of hurts today. Or people would say something like, oh, you look like you're limping. Is your knee okay? And it's just like, I'm trying to forget about this, but. that plays into it and again they only want to genuinely know how you are doing but it is hard to process and forget about it when it just keeps coming up yeah no for sure so the next season after after sochi you had a continental cup podium and then you were on the world cup podium that season does that sound right that does sound right i think that was the last world cup podium you had in 2015 correct you had these other surgeries that you talked about, and that was more or less to correct what happened, Sarah? To sum it up, it's like, you know, it's the same knee, and essentially, um, you know, once you tear an ACL, you are at risk for re-tearing it easier than someone else. And, you know, we don't need to get into it too much, but basically, I retore it and decided to take the really slow route to do it right this time. And... That's why I took so much time off the hill. And so I, I, I taught, that was 2015 uh, in June. And then I, I ended up jumping again in like October of 2016. And those surgeries were based on, you say, trying to do it right, give yourself plenty of time with the idea that you were going to come back, right? Absolutely. There was never a thought in my head that I was going to retire after that. I knew I had rushed that first one. And um, so it was kind of like, maybe in the back of my head, I knew something was going to tear again or something. I don't, I don't know, but I was never like, oh, this might be a retiring. It was like, nope, we're going to do this one more time and we're going to do it right. And it's going to be perfectly fine. And it has been. And so there's quite a bit of time between then and now. You obviously, uh, well, you tell me how, how did you reach the decision to retire, which you basically became publicly announced within the last few weeks, I think. Yeah. So after that super long rehab and then jumping, starting to jump again in 2016, you know, there was a lot of loss. I felt, um, we had lost my coach, um, my Italian coach prior to the 2014 Olympics, which was really hard on me and um, the new coach that we had 
was not someone I meshed really well with. Um, of course, I still had Alan Alborn at home, which was fantastic. And I mean, he was my rock through the ups and the downs, no matter what. But you know, when I went over to Europe, he was staying home with his family. And so I had to deal with these new European coaches that were fine, but it, it didn't, it didn't fill my soul, I guess, as the way it did before. And then I also lost a lot of teammates, a lot of teammates had decided to retire. And we were no longer that powerhouse that we had been, we had some young up and comers. And there was like, it was trying to get on the right way. But it just, it wasn't the same. And um, my jumping wasn't the same. My knee wasn't the same. I still loved the actual jumping part but there was a lot of details and um things that was a struggle for me and so then yeah fast forward to abby nina um abby nita and i going to the 2018 olympics that was a super hard year it was really challenging to qualify for the 2018 olympics i obviously won olympic trials which gave me that first olympic spot and the other two qualified because of their world cup spots and so yeah the 2018 olympics was it was different because I didn't, I had no attention on me. I was total middle of the pack. I hadn't had good World Cup competitions at all. Things were not clicking. I felt like I was in pain all the time. I just, it wasn't fulfilling in the way that it used to be fulfilling. Looking back, of course, I probably could have done some things differently. And the team around me, in terms of my physical therapist, in terms of those coaches and and other things like that, they were doing the best they can. I, I don't know how I would have changed it, but it just wasn't the same. So, you know, 2018 was great. It was, I had okay jumps, competed in Korea, and um, that was kind of that. And then, you know, fast forward to the end of the season, 2018, I just realized that I needed to take a break from the sport. I needed to step back and reconnect with the passion. And I decided to move to Colorado to pursue more education and just kind of fall back in love with, I don't, I don't know, fall back in love with definitely skiing, not even on the ski jumping level, just alpine skiing, fall back in love with winter, fall back in love with exercising for myself. And that's exactly what happened in this uh, spring, summer of 2018 into 2019. And then in 2019, I decided I do want to keep going. So I announced that I was going to start training again. I had full support from USA Nordic, which was amazing. And then um, I had another injury in, in July of 2019 and uh, blew out my back. Ended up having to have surgery in December of 2019 to fix a severely herniated disc um, that we think I had been dealing with for a long time. But um, it was, I was completely unfunctional without getting it fixed and not to just keep going, but, um, to keep going, I guess is I, uh, I got back to about 75% training level, um, training volume, um, with full intention that I would keep going. And once I met the 75%, I was just, it wasn't there. I, I still had pain and it just didn't feel like it was the right path for me. And that's, that was last summer, middle of the pandemic. I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't think this is the right path for me. So I've held it inside for quite a few months now that I've been retired. I've reached out to quite a few people before my social media retirement post. So many people have known before, but it kind of just came to fruition a couple of weeks ago that it was the end. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but I, I love your comment about learning to fall in love with skiing again. I mean, because so oftentimes 
everybody works so hard and they're so focused on results or, or high performance, you forget to see the wind in your face or the snow falling on your parka and all of those things, Sarah. Absolutely. And they're really quite lovely and quite profound. Yeah. I mean, that's why I started. I, I started skiing at the age of two and I started ski jumping at the age of seven. And I, like I said, I stayed in the sport. I continued in the sport because I loved it. And I felt like in those years, 2016, 17, 18, it just kind of disappeared. I wasn't alpine skiing. I wasn't doing those things that filled my soul. And that was affecting me on the ski jump. And it was, yeah. so it was time to step back and recognize, okay, what are our priorities in life? Not just as an athlete, but in life to keep you happy. Yeah. Those are good things. And, and let's talk about now uh, the Sarah of right now and, and what you, regarding jumping, what, uh, what, what might be the future for you? Uh, it, like, will you work with the fly girls program do you hope to be a kind of uh, mentor, you know, which doesn't require a big job description or anything like that? How do you how do you hold the future with your relationship with jumping? Two things here. One, as I do coach the Fly Kids program, so it's boys and girls. We added boys in a couple years ago, and it's a fantastic program that we have a camp every pretty much the full month of July in Park City and Steamboat Springs collecting the best junior athletes from around the nation. And that's a really great place for me to reconnect with those up and comers and just coach kids in such a malleable time in their life, um, not just as athletes, but as, as human beings. And I, so I really enjoy getting my foot wet in the coaching in that area. And then on the other side, I'm very highly involved with FIS, as we talked about before, and the progression of women's ski jumping on the political side. And that is something that I will remain heavily involved with until until we are quote unquote each is going to be a long, long time. So yeah, both of those things keep me very connected to the community, which is really important for me and something that I never want to be too far from. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. What would you tell a young girl, a young ski jumper of either gender? What would you tell them about the sport? What is the distillation of some of the things you've learned that you would mention? Because you've seen it all. I've seen a lot of things. I think, I mean, I always come back to one word and that's passion. And you have to have passion for the raw part of this sport. So you have to love the hard days in the gym. You have to love the runs that we have to do, the stretching sessions that we have to do, the cold days on the jumping hill. And if you find that and connect to that early, you're going to go very far in this sport. I think if you start to lose that at an early age, then just kind of step away and like recognize that and reassess maybe what those priorities to are. And that's what I say to the juniors that I that I coach is, you know, do sports that you're passionate about because again, that's the only way you're going to be successful and when I say successful, I don't even mean on a result side, but I just mean that you learn skills that you're going to use for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I really want to thank you for talking. Um, it, it's it's delightful, um, insightful for people to to get a little bit inside of your life. I mean, our viewership, our listenership is people that, you know, it's a niche market. They're 
they're people that really are interested and know some aspects of your story. But I mean, you're delightful. And I, I think that you're the, in every way you interpret the word, you're a huge winner. I, I admire you and, uh, and how you've gone about it. So I just want to say thank you so much. And we wish you nothing but the best moving forward, Sarah. Oh, thank you. That's some very, very kind words. And, you know, like I said, I'm not far from the ski jumping community ever. Um, it remains something very deep in my heart and soul that I'll, I'll stick around for many years to come. And I'm so thankful for the opportunities and the people that I've met throughout my entire career and life as a ski jumper. All right. Sarah Hendrickson, thank you so very much for joining us. I'm Peter Graves. Please check out our podcasts on any of the variety of platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think. Thanks for joining us. This is Ticket to Fly. We hope you've enjoyed the debut season of Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast. Over the past months, we've brought you athletes, coaches, and sport leaders, all sharing their stories of this great sport. Watch for more episodes to come over the summer and into the Olympic season. If you enjoyed this episode of Ticket to Fly, please help by hitting the like button and leaving a review. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and that way you'll be sure to get every episode of Ticket to Fly delivered directly to you. Stay tuned for more episodes to come. For your host, Peter Graves, I'm Tom Kelly. Thanks for joining us on USA Nordic's Ticket to Fly.